0: Welcome to Hidden History and Odyssey Through Time. I'm your host, John Rodriguez, and this is the seventh episode of the podcast, A Confidential Correspondent, the biography of Hercules Mulligan. Giving testimony to the British House of Commons in 1779, American politician turned loyalist Joseph Galloway estimated that Irishmen composed perhaps one half of the Continental Army. Five years later, after Washington's army won the war, another expert witness told Parliament that quote, the Irish language was as commonly spoken in the American ranks as English, and that Irish valor quote, determined the contest. Those claims contained a fair degree of exaggeration, but they capture an essential truth. Men of Irish heritage played crucial roles in fighting the American Revolutionary War, Irish Americans sided with the Patriots against the British Army in overwhelming numbers and shouldered muskets at Lexington and Concord during the Battle of Bunker Hill and at every other significant military encounter over the eight long years of war. Their numbers included generals, colonels, thousands of enlisted men, and even spies. In New York, equally strenuous efforts were made by the British to enlist quote, the immigrants of Ireland. General Sir Henry Clinton wrote the English Secretary of War of his plan to lure the poverty-stricken Irish to a cause which, he candidly admitted, quote, was contrary to the particular interests of most of them. Although the British spent much time and money trying to persuade the Irish, both at home and in America, to join their side of the conflict, they were rarely successful. Probably the best individual example of Irish loyalty and daring is the story of Hercules Mulligan. This burly gentleman's tailor was one of the leaders of New York's Sons of Liberty. He battled Tories with words and fists in the turbulent days before the Revolution. When hostilities began and Washington was forced to retreat from New York, Mulligan stayed behind. He pretended to have a change of heart about the rebellion, but in all actuality, Mulligan had become one of Washington's most valuable spies throughout the war. Mulligan's story, hidden history that has remained long forgotten. Is the story of a man determined to see the American dream come to fruition and a foreign superpower intent on preserving dominance over the 13 American colonies. Hercules Mulligan was born on September 25, 1740 in the Northern Irish town of Coleraine in County Antrim to Hugh and Sarah Cook Mulligan. Along with Hercules, Mr. and Mrs. Mulligan had two other sons, Hugh and Cook, and one daughter, Sarah. Around the year 1746, the Mulligan family immigrated to America and settled in New York City. Hercules and his family did not arrive in this country as destitute immigrants, indentured servants or redemptioners, but rather they paid their own passage. In 1747, Hugh Mulligan was in business as a wig maker, but in later years he was engaged in mercantile business. Mr. Mulligan made sure that his three sons received commercial training and they all became prosperous merchants. Shortly after the Mulligan family arrived in New York City, young Hercules was placed under the care of James O'Brien, an Irish schoolmaster. While we are unsure how much education Hercules received as a youth, it's safe to say he was a fairly well-educated youth according to the standards of the day. A common misconception that could be found on the internet is that Hercules Mulligan attended King's College, which later became Columbia University. One of the only Mulligan historians, Michael J. O'Brien, does not mention King's College in his 1937 biography of Hercules. Furthermore, we took a look at the matricula or register of admissions and graduations and of officers employed in King's College at New York and the name Hercules Mulligan is not present. What could have led the internet to believe that Hercules Mulligan had attended King's College? Perhaps it was the little-known fact that a young Alexander Hamilton stayed in the Mulligan household for some time and is listed in the matricula as having been admitted to King's College in the year 1774. Adding to the confusion may be the fact that John W. Mulligan, the eldest son of Hercules, graduated from Columbia College, formerly known as King's College, in 1791. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if Hercules attended King's College or not as his later actions will show that he was an intelligent man. As for early employment, it seems that Hercules first worked for an importing house on the waterfront and then the business section of New York City. Hercules was very ambitious and while he initially worked for his father's business as an accounting clerk, eventually Hercules opened up a tailoring and haberdashery business catering to wealthy officers of the British Crown Forces. Mulligan's first shop was located on Water Street, near Lower Manhattan's busy East River wharves. Sometime between 1774 and 1776, Hercules relocated to 23 Queen Street, today's Pearl Street. One advertisement for his clothing business said he employed a number of tailors and that his stock included, quote, superfine cloths of the most remarkable colors, Gold and silver lace with some half laces for hats. Gold and silver spangled buttons and loops. Gold and silver treble French chains. Gold and silver cord, tassels, vellum, and threads. Irish linens, gloves, hat trimmings of all sorts, and silk breeches and silks of all colors. Hercules Mulligan was an exuberant character. By all accounts, he was handsome, tall, and someone who stood out in a crowd. He had a natural gift of gab and drew people around whenever he spoke. Mulligan had a quality and presence that caused him to be instantly well-liked by anyone he met, including complete strangers. In 1765, the British government passed the Stamp Act. It meant that all legal documents and printed papers used in the American colonies had to have an official stamp The result was that every piece of paper the colonists used was taxed by the British. This act was passed in England without asking the American colonies, which many colonists found unfair. They were being taxed by a government that did not allow them to take part in political decisions. This was the first time the British had taxed the colonies, and the colonists were worried it was just the beginning of many more taxes. Around the time that the agitation over the Stamp Act began, Hercules Mulligan was a sturdy young Irishman and no lover of British rule, so it should come as no surprise that he early identified himself with the association known as the Sons of Liberty. From the New York Gazette and the Weekly Mercury of March 25, 1771, we learn that, quote, the association was formed to celebrate the repeal of the Stamp Act of 1765, and according to the New York Journal or General Advertiser of December 16, 1773, Quote, the Association of the Sons of Liberty was comprised of a great number of the principal gentlemen of the city, merchants, lawyers, and other inhabitants of all ranks, who organized to testify their adherence to the diabolical project of enslaving America. The Association of the Sons of Liberty extended throughout the colonies, from Massachusetts to South Carolina. It appears that New York was the central post from which communications were dispatched to and from the east. And to the south as far as maryland while the exact name sons of liberty may not have been used as the official moniker by the leaders of the new york opposition to the stamp act in 1765 they were popularly known around that time as the liberty boys according to mulligan historian michael j o'brien it was in 1765 that hercules arranged for the distribution of a highly incendiary publication called the constitutional current which attacked the Stamp Act in strong language. The single issue newspaper, which was privately printed by William Goddard in Woodbridge, New Jersey, would be spread throughout the city by a man named Lawrence Sweeney. It wasn't long before this publication caught the attention of colonial printers and royal colonial officials alike. Sweeney was apprehended and questioned. The British wanted the names of the publishers and distributors of this inflammatory newspaper. Sweeney only knew one name, that of Hercules Mulligan, but he did not reveal his identity and instead gave the British an answer that would lead to nowhere. Interesting side note, it appears that Mr. Sweeney was well known and popular within the city of New York. An announcement of his death appeared in the New York Gazette and Weekly Mercury of April 16, 1770 that said, quote, Last Tuesday died Lawrence Sweeney, as well known in this city as any man in it, and will be perhaps as much missed. As the patriotic movement gained strength, the Sons of Liberty in New York City sometimes erected Liberty Poles to symbolize their displeasure with British authorities. The first such pole was put up in 1766 in celebration of the repeal of the 1765 Stamp Act. The British hated this pole and chopped it down in protest of the fact that the New York government had refused to enforce the Stamp Act. For the next ten years, The Liberty Pole, like the Liberty Tree in Boston, would serve as the rallying place for any and all patriots in the city. The British soldiers, already angry with the New York Assembly for not complying with the Quartering Act of 1765, were not going to tolerate a symbol of colonial opposition to Parliament's authority in their midst. The Quartering Act of 1765 stated that Great Britain would house its soldiers in American barracks and public houses, but if soldiers outnumbered the housing available, Would quarter them in any building they required, even the homes of colonists. Colonial authorities were required to pay the cost of housing and feeding these soldiers. In 1766, with the Quartering Act being mostly left unenforced by the New York government, Parliament reacted to this by dissolving the assembly and replacing it with one that did agree. In response, the Sons of Liberty posted a publication called, quote, To the Betrayed Inhabitants of the City and Colony of New York, on December 16, 1769. The British blew up this Liberty Poll on January 16, 1770 because of the publication and monetary incentives and began handing out their own leaflets called God and a Soldier, which made light of the Sons of Liberty. On January 19, the Sons of Liberty located the two British soldiers posting those leaflets. The soldiers were seized and it was announced that they were going to be taken before the mayor where a complaint was to be lodged. Hearing this, the other soldiers rushed back to their barracks for help. Word spread quickly what was happening and soon, quote, a considerable number of people collected opposite to the mayor's. Shortly after, 20 soldiers with cutlasses and bayonets from the lower barracks made their appearance. The soldiers wanted to rescue their friends, but were greatly outnumbered and quickly surrounded. As the soldiers were being escorted to their barracks, they reached John Street between William Street and Pearl Street. This area was known as Golden Hill after a nearby wheat field. The passage that led to Golden Hill was narrow, but the colonists were unconcerned because it allowed protection for those who were unarmed to stay in the rear. Little did the colonists realize that not only were there soldiers in front of them, but soon, quote, a posse of soldiers from another quarter took up a position behind them. Fortunately for the colonists, the soldiers behind them were not angry and were only there as a defensive force. The commander of the soldiers on top of the hill, realizing the situation that the colonists were in and probably thinking he now had a large enough force to return to the mayor's house and free the two soldiers being detained, gave the command. Soldiers, draw your bayonets and cut your way through them. The colonists on the front line were forced to defend themselves with rungs they had secured near the mayor's house. All of the rest were unarmed. There was a general brawl between the British and the colonists, with the giant Hercules reportedly heavily involved in the dispute. With so many lethal weapons present and emotions running high, it's shocking that no deaths occurred that fateful day in New York City. However, the hand-to-hand combat was very bloody, and several individuals suffered serious injuries. It is unknown if Hercules was physically injured during this altercation, which became known as the Battle of Golden Hill, This battle is an important aspect of American history because it occurred some six weeks before the Boston Massacre, becoming one of the earliest violent incidents in what would eventually lead to the American Revolutionary War. As early as 1772, we find Hercules Mulligan on terms of intimate friendship with Alexander Hamilton. His brother, Hugh Mulligan, was a junior partner in the importing firm of Cortwright and Company, and they were the owners of seven vessels engaged in the West Indian trade. It was through this connection that Hercules formed a friendship with Hamilton, which was destined to continue, and did continue, until the tragic end of that great statesman by a bullet from the pistol of Aaron Burr on July 12, 1804. When Hamilton came to America from his home in the West Indies in the year 1772, He brought letters of introduction, quote, to certain agreeable and distinguished persons in New York. One of those letters was intended for Hugh, who in turn introduced Hamilton to Hercules, who took an immediate liking to the boy. Hamilton was invited to stay with Hercules until he had solid plans of his own, and Hamilton accepted his offer. There is no doubt that the politics of the day and the methods of solving the growing difficulties with England, which were then becoming the subject of universal interest in the colonies, were discussed in the Mulligan household. On those occasions, in listening to the conversations of his host and his friends, young Hamilton obtained an insight into the aspirations and intentions of the Patriots. On Wednesday, October 27, 1773, a wedding was celebrated in New York City, Hercules Mulligan married Elizabeth Sanders in Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan. Today you can visit the third and current Trinity Church, the one everyone knows. But in 1773, Hercules and Elizabeth were married in the first Trinity Church, which would sadly be destroyed in the Great New York City Fire of 1776. Elizabeth was the daughter of John Sanders of New York and niece of Admiral Sanders of the British Royal Navy. Despite the family she came from, Elizabeth shared and supported her husband's political philosophy. Their first child, John W. Mulligan, was born on April 13, 1774, and two more sons and five daughters would follow. November 22, 1774, citizens of New York City gathered at City Hall to elect a committee of 60 persons, quote, chosen from the freeholders and freemen of the city. Known as the Committee of Sixty, or Committee of Observation, the duty of this committee was to enforce the Continental Association, an agreement among the American colonies adopted by the First Continental Congress on October 20, 1774. This agreement called for a trade boycott against British merchants by the colonies. The full membership list was published in the New York Gazetteer on November 24, 1774, and among the names of eminent Americans of the day was Hercules Mulligan. April 19, 1775 was the day in history that marked the outbreak of armed conflict between the Kingdom of Great Britain and its 13 colonies in America. The Battles of Lexington and Concord were fought in the province of Massachusetts Bay within the towns of Lexington, Concord, Lincoln, present-day Arlington, and Cambridge. Historians know that when the news of the Battles of Lexington and Concord reached New York the city was thrust almost instantly into a state of the most alarming confusion on april 26 1775 isaac Lowe, a merchant in new york city who served as a member of the continental congress called for the dismissal of the committee of 60 and the convening of a provincial congress as well as a committee of 100 to perform the function of the provincial congress until it was convened on may 1st 1, 1775 the committee of 100 was formed and yet again The name of Hercules Mulligan could be found on the roster of this historic committee. The Committee of 100 was officially replaced by the New York Provincial Congress, a revolutionary provisional government that was a pro-American alternative to the New York General Assembly, which first convened on May 23, 1775. August 23, 1775 was certainly a thrilling day for Hercules Mulligan and other patriotic citizens of New York. While under fire from HMS Asia, a 64-gun third-rate ship of the Royal Navy that was anchored in the harbor. Mulligan and others managed to remove the 21 pieces of artillery on the seawall of the Battery, today formerly known as Battery Park at the southern tip of Manhattan Island. The New York Provincial Congress had been worried that the British would seize the weapons, and before they could do that, the order was given by the Provincial Congress for the cannons to be transferred to the fortifications in the highlands of the Hudson River. The shots from HMS Asia were the opening of hostilities on the city of New York and the fact that Hercules Mulligan was there as a participant shows that he was fearless of the consequences and was ready to do his part in defense of the city. Although the American army controlled New York, the city still had a very large loyalist population. While the royal governor had fled the city with his tail between his legs, finding safety on a British warship, the loyalist mayor of New York, David Matthews, had remained in the city in an attempt to exercise the duties of his office. In mid-June 1776, according to historian John C. Hamilton, quote, Washington had appointed to meet some officers at a designated place. Information was given by a female in the Tory interests and the necessary arrangements were made to seize him, but timely intelligence frustrated the attempt. A partisan officer, a native of New York, called at the shop of Mulligan late in the evening to obtain a watchcoat. The late hour awakened curiosity and after some inquiries, the officer vauntingly boasted that before another day, they would have this rebel general in their hands. This staunch patriot, as soon as the officer left him, hastened unobserved to the wharf and dispatched a billet by a Negro, giving information of the design. The partisan officer that paid a visit to Mulligan's shop was a frequent customer, Mayor David Matthews, and the Negro who Mulligan sent off with the information was a man named Cato, a black patriot and the slave of Hercules Mulligan, there will be more about Cato later on though. Mayor Matthews and William Tryon, the royal governor, were accused of being involved in his plot to kill Washington, as was a member of Washington's lifeguard, Thomas Hickey, who would eventually be executed for his role. While John C. Hamilton did not provide any further proof to back up this tale other than his words, it's worth noting that he was the son of Alexander Hamilton, He knew Hercules Mulligan well, and the family papers show that Hercules' son John was an intimate friend of both Alexander Hamilton and his son John C. A story has also come down in the Mulligan family that on the evening of July 9, 1776, after the Declaration of Independence was read to the Continental troops in the presence of Washington and his staff, Hercules Mulligan and a large crowd of soldiers and civilians fired up with patriotic zeal moved to the Bowling Green at the southern end of Broadway and released their patriotic passion on the gilded statue of King George III that sat majestically on a pedestal in the center of the park. With the rise of American patriotism, the statue became a hated symbol of tyrannical British rule and the colonists had decided it was time for the statue to go. The New York Gazette and Weekly Mercury of July 15, 1776, describes the destruction of the statue. Quote, it was broken from its pedestal and broken in pieces, and we hear the lead wherewith this monument was made is to be run into bullets. According to family legend, Hercules smashed the locked gate of the fence surrounding the statue and climbed on top of the marble pedestal where he was able to secure a rope around the neck of the king's statue. A group of about 40 people pulled on the rope and brought the statue down to the ground where it was dismembered. The head of the statue was intended to be put on display impaled on a stake, however, some local loyalists to the crown stole the head and smuggled it to England. While there are currently no surviving records that support Mulligan's role in bringing down the statue, our research on Hercules Mulligan shows that he was more than capable of participating in such an event. On August 27, 1776, the Battle of Long Island took place. It was the first major battle to take place after the United States declared its independence on July 4, and in troop deployment and combat, it was the largest battle of the war. The battle ended with the Americans being defeated and the British gaining access to the strategically important Port of New York, which they held for the rest of the war. On the night of August 29, 30, Washington evacuated the entire army to Manhattan without the loss of supplies or a single life. The Continental Army was driven out of Manhattan entirely after the Battle of Harlem Heights on September 16, 1776. The British were in complete control of New York City. Loyalists within the city who had been persecuted quickly began to retaliate against the Patriots. Lists of the disloyal were drawn up, and not surprisingly, the name Hercules Mulligan appeared on almost all of the list. During the night of September 20th, 1776, the Great Fire of New York ravaged the city. British leaders accused revolutionaries acting within the city of deliberately starting the fire, and many patriots used this fire as a great excuse to escape the city. As the fire spread, Hercules made an attempt to flee the city with his wife and two year old son. But they were apprehended by British authorities. While Mulligan's wife and child were let go, Hercules was manacled and marched off towards the Provost's prison. By mid-November 1776, Washington's army was camped at Hackensack, New Jersey, opposite New York City. During the night of November 19, possibly the 20th, Hercules Mulligan made the trip to Hackensack. He had only been out of prison for about a month, and his movements were certainly being watched, and yet he dared to cross the river. In the American camp, Mulligan was reunited with his friend Alexander Hamilton. And while we do not know the exact purpose of this trip to Hackensack, Chief Justice George Shea of the New York Marine Court and historian John C. Hamilton believed that when Alexander Hamilton was appointed to Washington's staff on March 1, 1777, it was around this time that Mulligan became a confidential correspondent of the Commander-in-Chief, and furnished him most valuable intelligence from within occupied New York City. During the winter of 1776-1777, Mulligan's business continued to grow. Apparently, being jailed for being a rebel did not have any impact on his loyalist British or German trade. Due to his line of work and charming personality, Mulligan had soon collected a great deal of information that he was certain would be of vital importance to General Washington, but he was unsure how to get the information to him. On Saturday, March 1st, 1777, Alexander Hamilton joined Washington's official military family and in Washington's own words, Hamilton's duties were, quote, to think for me as well as execute orders. Shortly after Hamilton's appointment to Washington's staff, The general shared with the young officer that he wished that they could employ some trusted spy who could keep them advised of the situation in New York City. It may have been then that Hamilton suggested Hercules Mulligan for the job. Washington had Hamilton set everything up and it was decided, due to security reasons, that only Hamilton would know about Mulligan. George Washington was so cautious about this mission that nothing regarding Mulligan's recruitment and service as a spy was ever mentioned in Washington's papers corresponding to the time that the British occupied New York. Because he was still being watched closely by British authorities, Hercules needed to find alternative methods to pass information on to General Washington. Although he had occasional interactions with other spies, Hercules mainly worked alone or with assistance from his servant, Cato. Most people knew that Cato was associated with Mulligan, and it wasn't long before Cato came under scrutiny when his frequent absences from the city caught the attention of British authorities. One time, when returning to Mulligan's home, Cato was arrested after getting off a boat in the East River and questioned. Cato was faithful, however, and refused to reveal the truth and so he was thrown into prison and treated with great cruelty. While we are on the subject of Cato, There is very little information currently available about his life. We have come across no existing records that tell us about Cato's life before Hercules Mulligan or after. What we do know is that whoever Cato was, he was an American patriot, just like Hercules, who risked his life to deliver confidential information. Due to the amount of loyalty Cato showed Hercules during the war, it may be safe to say that Hercules treated Cato well, despite the underlying complications of their relationship. In the 1790 U.S. Census, Hercules Mulligan was listed as having one slave in his household. We can only assume that slave was Cato. After 1790, the census records are either missing or difficult to interpret. In 1799, New York State passed an Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery, which specified that children born to a slave mother after July 4, 1799 were declared legally free, but not until male children had turned 28 and females 25. Slaves born before that date remained in servitude, although they were redefined as indentured servants. We here at Hidden History hope that Hercules decided to free Cato at some point after 1790, but as of right now, unfortunately, there's no evidence to support this. During the spring of 1778, Mulligan once again had a running with the law. While in a tavern on King Street, Hercules got into the altercation with a major, John Lynch, and his British recruiting party. The following day, Hercules was summoned to military headquarters and interrogated about his quote, obstructing Major Lynch in the performance of his duty. But with his usual faculty for getting out of tight places, nothing came of the inquiry. In the summer of 1780, Hercules was receiving information that a planned operation to the north was about to take place. 5,000 French troops were planning on landing at Newport, Rhode Island to assist the Americans, and the British planned on crushing the French before they knew what hit them. Hercules was able to get this information to General Washington via Cato, and the General positioned his army to threaten New York but also be in a position to support the French if need be. The British, worried about Washington's growing strength and aggressiveness, abandoned the Rhode Island plan and remained in the city while the French landed at Newport without incident. It was also during that summer of 1780 that Hercules heard rumors about something big that was about to occur. The upper Hudson River was mentioned, as well as an American defection. In spite of his best efforts to reveal the truth, ultimately, Major General Benedict Arnold's defection took everyone by surprise. In September 1780, Benedict Arnold hoped to surrender the fortifications at West Point along with its entire garrison to the British and return for £10,000 and a general's commission in the British Army. Fortunately for the Americans, British Major John Andre was captured with incriminating documents and Arnold's plot was revealed on Monday, September 25, 1780. Arnold was able to take refuge on board a British warship lying in the Hudson River near West Point which brought him immediately to New York, where he was appointed a Brigadier General of the British Army. When Arnold arrived in New York, he brought with him knowledge that American agents were active in and around British headquarters. When news of the execution of Major Andre on October 2, 1780 reached New York, we are told, quote, the Loyalists raised a great outcry for revenge. There were certain people in New York whose sympathies toward the American cause were well known and some of whom were suspected of quote, aiding the enemy. Over 50 people were arrested and jailed, including Hercules Mulligan. His brother Hugh had overheard conversations about the planned arrest of suspected spies, and although Hugh tried to warn Hercules, the Irish patriot refused to flee and hide. When Hercules was arrested, he was taken to Bridewell prison and confined in a ward for desperate criminals. One of his descendants relates that quote, On the third day of his confinement, he eluded his jailer and dropped into the yard. But luck was against him and when, in the very act of climbing over the wall into an adjoining garden, the guard was just being changed and the luckless prisoner was returned to his cell. Rumor has it that Hercules attempted to escape Bridewell prison because he had learned that Benedict Arnold had been the one who named him as a spy. However, there is currently no solid evidence to support this claim. After his failed escape attempt, Hercules was transferred to the Provost's prison. He was arraigned before a military court-martial, and the main witness to appear against him was Benedict Arnold. But although Arnold pressed the charge vigorously and presented to the officers of the court-martial what he insisted was presumptive evidence of the prisoner's guilt, he was unable to convict Hercules, and that fact in itself is an indication of the cleverness of Mulligan in hoodwinking the military authorities and covering up the evidence of his, quote, guilt. How long he remained a prisoner is not known, but the fact that he lost his business about this time, as indicated in the family papers, would make it appear that he must have been detained for a considerable time, and that he passed through a period of great danger. Hercules was finally released from jail in February 1781 And we know this because in February 1781, information provided by Hercules would save General Washington's life yet again. After getting out of prison, Hercules returned home to a business that was barely hanging on. Word that Arnold had accused Mulligan of being a dangerous traitor has spread throughout the city. To make ends meet, Hercules was forced to take a second job working at Courtright and Company with his brother Hugh. Toward the end of February, Hercules was able to learn that the British were aware that Washington was planning on meeting with the French in Rhode Island. Their plan was to capture or kill the American commander as he passed through Lebanon, Connecticut on Monday, March 5, 1781. Unable to send Cato with this vital bit of information, Hercules instead had the information sent through another spy. The message arrived in time and Washington took a more secure route to Rhode Island leaving the British to wait in vain in Connecticut before sailing back to New York City. General Washington had escaped death yet again, mainly in thanks to Hercules Mulligan. This incident was mentioned in a letter from General Washington to French military officer Lafayette dated New Windsor, February 25, 1781. Although Mulligan isn't named directly, the information provided in the letter was the exact information Hercules had sent to Washington's headquarters in october 1781 general cornwallis surrendered his army to general washington and the french at yorktown virginia as the british position began to fall apart rapidly cornwallis asked for terms of surrender on october 17 and two days later the last major land battle of the american revolutionary war was over with the capture of more than 7,000 british soldiers Negotiations between the United States and Great Britain began. Meanwhile, Hercules Mulligan and his family were struggling financially during the period of 1782-1783. His tailoring business had all but collapsed due to a lack of trade and a lack of work at Courtright and Company meant that Hugh had to unfortunately fire his brother. Hercules did everything he could to support his family and fortunately, he was never sent to prison for his debts. Although as late as 1785, he continued to be listed in one particular New York newspaper as a quote, insolvent debtor. On September 3rd, 1783, the Treaty of Paris was signed by representatives of King George III of Great Britain and representatives of the United States of America, officially ending the American Revolutionary War and overall state of conflict between the two countries. November 25, 1783, Evacuation Day. The British Army departed from New York City after the end of the American Revolutionary War. George Washington Park Custis, grandson of Mrs. Martha Washington, wrote the following about that day in his book, Recollections and Private Memoirs of Washington. The letter of which we have made such honorable mention was forwarded to the General by M afterwards celebrated for having conveyed to the American commander the most important information during the occupancy of New York by the British Army. The morning after Washington made his triumphal entry into the city of New York, 25th November, 1783, he breakfasted with M, to the wonder of the Tories and the perfect horror of the Whigs. There can be no question as to who Custis meant by M, although why he referred to Mulligan by the initial only is not clear. There can be little doubt also as to the source of this information. It was obtained from Washington himself. Custis' father was Colonel John Park Custis, son of Mrs. Washington by her first husband, and after the war, while Washington was President of the United States, Custis lived in the President's home as one of the family. It is said that Washington personally thanked Hercules for his patriotism, and especially for the timely warnings that in at least two cases had foiled attempts on Washington's life. As a further gesture of appreciation, he ordered a complete civilian wardrobe from Mulligan's tailor shop. The Irishman did not hesitate to take advantage of such a distinguished patronage, and his shop prospered under its new title, Clothier to General Washington. In April 1789, George Washington returned to New York City as the first president of the United States and lived at 3 Cherry Street until February 1790. The president's new residence was very close to 23 Queen Street, the location of Mulligan's shop. In less than a year, seven clothing purchases had been paid on behalf of President Washington, totaling a little over 228 pounds. Today that amount would be a little over $50,000. When you have one of the most famous men in the country buying clothes from your store, you'd have to be a fool not to take advantage of that situation. Having General and later President Washington as a customer was great for business and Mulligan's shop continued to prosper. As New York's leading clothier, Hercules earned a handsome income until his retirement in 1820 at the ripe age of 80. It was at this time that the Mulligans moved from 23 Queen Street to a fine home Hercules purchased at 280 Bowery Lane. The closing years of Hercules' life were spent quietly at the home of his son, John W. Mulligan, which was then at 20 Cedar Street. On the 4th of March, 1825, surrounded by his sons and grandchildren, the old patriot Hercules Mulligan surrendered his spirit into the hands of his maker In the New York newspapers of the time, there are no obituary notices of his death beyond a mere announcement in the New York Advertiser of March 9, 1825. Mulligan's last years had been spent in the solitude of his home, and doubtless, having passed out of the memory of the younger generation, he belonged to the forgotten past. This will be understood readily when we consider the fact that when Hercules first settled in New York City, the population was around 9,000 and in the year of his death it was 166,086. The population of New York City today, by the way, is almost 19 million people. Hercules was associated with Trinity Church in Manhattan for many years and although the Mulligan family had a burial vault in Trinity Churchyard, Hercules' remains were buried in the Sanders vault, the vault of his wife's family. Later when the church was enlarged, several graves and vaults were covered over by the new addition. And among these were the Sanders vault. And so the Sanders vault is directly under the altar of the present church. And some would say that it's an honor that the remains of the American Irish patriot rest in this spot. The Mulligan burial vault is covered by a slab, which although now considerably discolored by the ravages of time, seems to have been originally of white marble. And on it is this simple inscription without date, Whaley and Mulligan's vault. The word willy, which is actually misspelt, is in reference to Hercules Mulligan's brother-in-law, Thomas Willie. When Thomas died in 1780, Hercules was among the people appointed executor of his estate. This vault can still be seen today in Trinity Churchyard. As we here at Hidden History dives into the life of Hercules Mulligan, his Irish temperament and love for the country that would come to be known as the United States of America reminded us of another Irish-American patriot. My grandfather, William McHenry, who served during the Korean War, would have been 91 years old this Christmas Eve, and so we dedicate this episode to him. Our next episode comes out after Christmas, and so we here at Hidden History would like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Stay happy, stay safe, and always stay informed. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Each episode of Hidden History will explore a story that has been hidden in the pages of history and needs to be told. Pictures, newspaper clippings, and links to external articles relating to a particular episode will be available on our website. Thanks again for listening. I'm John Rodriguez, and this has been Hidden History, an Odyssey Through Time.